Welcome to the Kettle Call Podcast. We are starting another career call. Uh, this one, I, I was waiting for a while to start. It's, it's, as all of them, I say that they're special, but this one will be will be nice and harder to to, to have here. But before uh, we start, let me go and call Brooke Latek. Hello, Brooke. Hi, Pedro. How are you? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Is it a good time for a call? It's always a great time for a cattle call. Thank you. So, yeah, so Brooks, today uh, I have the privilege to be recording in person again. You are in, in California, I'm in Pennsylvania, recording here with our guest, Dr. Steve Lurch. Steve is a senior associate dean at Penn State University, right, Steve? Yep, On the co- College of Ag Sciences. Perfect. So, Dr. Lurch, uh, we often start with two very simple questions. I joke that those are the questions that you can't miss. <laughs> and after that, we just... Uh, going to talk about your career and things that you, you've done in your life. So the first two question is, uh, where you're from and what do you do? Well, the, where I'm from is a, a little bit of a tricky question, Pedro, because <laughs> I've, I've lived in 13 states, uh, including, including my current state, Pennsylvania, and your home state of California. But uh, I grew up here in, uh, in Happy Valley in, at, uh, in State College, Pennsylvania, and uh, I spent most of my career in working for Big Ten universities. Uh, Actually, my parents were Spartans and we moved here uh, to Penn State uh, from East Lansing where my mom and dad uh, went to Michigan State. So, and and knowing all of this background, work living 13 different states, correct? Uh, Can you, I, I know this story, I think a little bit, but can you tell us how how did you start working with agriculture and when did you decide that you you were, you were going to pursue a, a career in, in animal science yeah okay well that's a that's a great a great question pedro um my father is actually a biochemist he has his phd in biochemistry from michigan state and he was on the faculty here at penn state and uh and actually, I'm a little bit chagrined to admit, but biochemistry is not a very highly heritable trait. <laughs> uh, it was a subject that I struggled in. And even though I became a nutritionist and biochemistry is the foundation of nutrition, uh, it's always been something I've, I've had to uh, over- uh, overcome. Um, my grandfather, my dad's father, raised Simmental cattle in Michigan, and, and my dad grew up on a farm. And so I had that that connection and that relationship growing up with my grandfather. And, uh, and when I was 16 years old, I had an opportunity to, to work for a cattle producer here. Uh, He had a a cow calf herd and I had an opportunity to work for him. And uh, he was a biology teacher in high school. So he, he farmed part-time and he needed, uh, he needed a strong back to help him on the farm. And, uh, it was kind of interesting because that 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 became my my love for for cattle and and beef nutrition grew out of that and and this biology teacher that I had that was a farmer he always approached his beef production kind of scientifically because he was a biologist mm-hmm. uh, obviously my father was a scientist and uh, and and he approached life that way too uh, my dad was always trying to find the unanswered question. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, that, and so that was a very important part of my career. And as I, as I uh, 
was approaching the uh, time when I need to think about college, I, I found out that there were these uh, these things called beef kettle scientists. And so I really married my upbringing from my father and his scientific outlook and, and Hugh Hodge, this uh, beef producer and biology teacher, I kind of married those two things together. And, and, and I learned at a very young age, uh, which was really hugely important for me, that I wanted to be a, a, a cowboy scientist, a beef, a beef scientist. So, so your dad was a scientist. So probably that had huge influence. You had this also big influence from uh, the, the producer that you work with. So you knew that you wanted to be the cowboy scientist. So from day one in, in undergrad, you knew that that's what you wanted to be. Yeah, when I started college, I, I knew I wanted a, a faculty position where I could do research and teaching about beef cattle. That That's pretty not, – not, not a lot of people no. have, have that – that approach since day one and how how did you do that so like you 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 came to undergrad here at Penn State right I did and and I was also so when at the same time I was working on the farm in the summers I and and after school I worked for a professor here at Penn State in the entomology department and he was and so all through college and, and, and through my last two years of high school, I worked for these two men. And, and I, you know, frankly, in, in the summer, I would, I would work 70 hours a, a week. And then when I went through college, I paid my own way through college. And I was working both jobs, you know, maybe 30 hours a week all during college. And, and this guy that uh, was the entomologist, you know, bugs are six-legged animals, uh, <laughs> He really taught me the business of how to be a scientist from a business perspective, how to manage grad students, how to write grants. My first publication was on metabolism of 2,4-D uh, in Jack Bean, mm -hmm. and he was, a, he was a, a chemical ecologist and uh, worked with pesticides. And that, those two mentors, plus my father, had a huge impact on me, and uh, I had an opportunity to uh, did well enough in college that, well, I should back up and give some credit to my wife. I met, <laughs> I met my wife in, in college and uh, she was very studious. And if I wanted to hang out with her, I had to spend a lot of time studying. That really helped my grade point average, uh, which allowed me to get into grad, uh, uh, accepted to grad school at the so, University of Illinois. So just, just before, uh, before we move to grad school here, you mentioned that you, you did an internship in entomology that that was during college. Right. And even before during high I worked school. for him after after school and high school, washing dishes and, and helping grad students do their research. And then I worked for him all through all through college. So about a total of seven years for both uh, both operations, beef cattle and okay. entomology. That's because this week, actually, Brooke and I were interviewing high, high school students that are going to come and, and work for us during the summertime. So it's it's nice to see. And one thing that, that we were talking is how impressed we were with the quality and the students mm. willing to learn mm. even before going to college. But did you do any research with cattle during college as well, as no. an undergrad? No. And my, all my research experiences 
uh, in college were with in entomology. I didn't work for Penn State in the in any animal science facilities. But the passion for beef is still there. The passion. I worked on the farm Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, and if he had a, a situation where he needed emergency help, I, and then the rest of the time, and this was summers in in during college, uh, during the semester, I I worked for the entomologist. And then uh, after finishing you, as you mentioned, you had the the help from Karen, keep good yeah. grades and yeah. studying. And why Illinois, and, and how did you take that decision? Well, I. I was taking a, an animal selection livestock evaluation class at Penn State, and, and it was taught by a guy named Erskine Cash, who was my undergraduate advisor. And, and he took us out to Illinois my junior year for a spring judging contest. And so I had an opportunity to go to, to Illinois and visit the campus and participate in that conference. So when it became time to... Um, when it became time to decide on, on graduate programs, I knew Illinois had a strong animal science department, and especially in research. I, I was very interested in research. And, uh, and, and so uh, um, Erskine Cash, my advisor, uh, encouraged me to apply there. And then you applied and, and was accepted? Yeah, by uh, a guy named George Fahey. And uh, George Fahey is a fiber chemist, and, and he was doing work across a whole range of species. Uh, at the time, he was mostly working with ruminants. Mm -hmm. and, and he had a, a USDA project looking at the, um, the use of, of crop residues and grazing crop residues during the winter uh, to meet the nutrient requirements for gestating beef cows. So you did your master's with Dr. Faye, but then you switch to a different advisor for, for a PhD. But it's, it's yeah, so I, there, right? I was fortunate that while I was uh, at Illinois working on my master's, um, we interviewed and eventually hired a guy named Larry Berger from University of Nebraska. And, uh, and Larry did, he was a feedlot nutritionist. And um, I, always, I always felt a little guilty leaving... George Fahey's program to go work in feedlot nutrition because uh, George Fahey was a tremendous mentor of mine. He's hugely successful. Um, he's the godfather of my firstborn son. Yeah, we're very close family members. And uh, but he encouraged me to work with Larry and and Larry was a rock star in his own right. And I was his first PhD student. I was very fortunate. Uh, all along the way, the mentors that I've had have been uh, incredibly important in guiding my my uh, career path and my the, and my approach to to what I do. So, and then you spent a couple of years in Illinois. Uh, you mentioned about the mentors, but then you became one in Ohio, right? Yeah. So, and, and you I moved. was really fortunate. I had I had such good good training at Illinois, and I and I uh, I credit them rather any ability that I have in terms of what I was able to accomplish during graduate school. I actually had uh, job offers at Virginia Tech, University of Florida, and Ohio State University coming out of grad school. And when I, after I interviewed at Ohio State, I got off the plane and George and Karen met me at the, at the plane to take me home. And, um, and George said, uh, what are you going to do? Where would you, where do you want to go? And, and I told him about the opportunities at Ohio. And he said, at Ohio State, you have the ability to achieve to your potential. 
Mm-hmm. And and I thought about that and I said, you know, you're I know you're right. There there was the infrastructure there that would allow me to achieve to my potential. And I didn't know what that potential would be. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was satisfied that, <laughs> that I, I could be successful at Ohio State. And can you tell us more about like uh, your work in Ohio? Like you you were there for 30, 32 years, 32 years. And and I think one of the. And it's it's really easy for me to ask because I'm probably pro, I'm sure I'm, I'm a product of that. Uh, one of the best things that I think you did throughout your career was producing not only science but also scientists. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us more about this? Like I always ask people to tell about their mentors. Mm-hmm. You mentioned about their mentors, but because you are one of my mentors. Can you tell us how to be one? Yeah, um, that's a that's a good question. You caught me off guard, Pedro. I've never thought about it that way before. But um, there there's a philosophy of, a philosophy of research that that I think is really important, and there are characteristics of a good scientist that I think are consistent. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, and I'll share some of those thoughts with you. I'm an old guy. I I graduated from Penn State 45 years ago. Yeah, actually. I've, I've been in academia. Uh, I started as an assistant professor at Ohio State in 1981, so mm-hmm. 41 years ago. I've been doing this a while. Um, one of the things I learned early on was that if you want to be a good scientist, you have to be comfortable in your ignorance. Okay? I, I know that there is so much that I don't know, mm-hmm. and it doesn't intimidate me. And I think maybe it's because my mentors, when I was growing up, were brilliant people. My, um, my, my father got his PhD in biochemistry in two and a half years from Michigan State, worked on RNA uh, before they knew what RNA was. Um, he, he's a very, very brilliant man. Oh, yeah. I have, I have four, uh, three siblings, and they're always smarter than me. And so I was always comfortable not being the smartest person in the room. Um, and, and Hugh Hodge, my mentor, uh, my biology teacher, was a very, very smart man. And then Ralph Muma, my mentor in the entomology department, um, you know, they, they, have, uh, in, they have scholarships named after him and plaques on the wall and a very accomplished scientist. So it was never intimidating for me to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't understand. And let's see if we can figure this out. And to be a scientist, it's about the discovery of the unknown. And if you can't admit your ignorance, then all you're doing is repeating something that somebody else already knows. And that's in my view, that's not science. That's not discoveries. Our goal is to discover the unknown. And in my view, there's a lot more that we don't know than what we actually do know. So, so I tried to, I tried to create that uh, that um, philosophy in my students. I always struggled with these strategic research plans. You know, tell me what your five year plan is for research. How could I possibly do that? Because the next question I ask is going to be based on what I learned in the last experiment I did. I, I can't have a five-year plan for my research <laughs> program. That's that's crazy. I, corn prices may go to 
to $7 a bushel. That's going to change the, the way I'm approaching what I do. Um, I might have just discovered something from an experiment that a grad student just did. That's going to, that's going to drive my next hypothesis. And one of, uh, one of the great scientists at Ohio State that I had the privilege to, privilege to work with was a guy named Burke DeHorty, and he was a rumen microbiologist. Mm -hmm. And he had a sign on the wall in his lab, and it said, if I knew what I was doing, it wouldn't be research. And, and I think that's profound. It is. <laughs> so that, that philosophy is one, one aspect. And then the second aspect is the human aspect. And that part of it is the part that's actually the most rewarding. It's the relationship that you develop with the people you work with. And, and this could be your colleagues uh, as a faculty member, the, the colleagues that, uh, that I became friends with and, and worked with. But most importantly, it's, it's the students that I had the opportunity to, to, to mentor, to become to become part of my family. And I, I appreciate my wife, Karen, for embracing uh, all of these students and, and helping me in that process of, of creating this, this family bond um, that, that is really the most satisfying and impactful thing uh, in my career is the, the relationships that I've established. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. I totally agree with you and, and the way that you, that you treat your your students is it's probably like when some people know that but not everybody knows that when i went to work with you i, I was actually a reproduction person yeah <laughs> <laughs> and if, if probably if i'm working with nutrition today is is a lot is because your uh, guidance I, i'm i'm very proud of that and, <laughs> and i take credit for everything you well, accomplish for the rest of your career me too uh, <laughs> i think i i'm i'm too tall to be working with reproduction so <laughs> I, i i always joke about that but mm -hmm. it's it's very nice so but you also you talk about your career about the philosophy that you that you develop which is is very very important uh Can you tell us more about like the some things that you did during that time in in the research that you that you we're going to talk more about the specific research points, but how your process of developing that like you mentioned yeah. like to to be curious how 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 did you develop that curiosity in. That's a it, it it comes in different ways. Uh, it's partly those things partly developed by reading the literature and and trying to figure out what the next question to ask is. And and I tried to do that with my students. I, I, when I ask them to review a, a manuscript, I, I say, don't tell me what they found. I don't care what they discovered. I don't, I don't care what the summary says for this paper. Tell me what the next experiment should be. Tell me what they didn't discover in this, in this paper. Tell me what the most important compelling next experiment is to run and how would you, how would you develop a hypothesis and, and test that hypothesis uh, for that experiment? So that's, that's, uh, that's kind of one approach that, that I use in it. Um, And sometimes it's communication with with friends uh, across the country, or maybe my colleagues at at, uh, 
in in uh, at Ohio State at the time. Um, I'll, I'll I'll give you an example. Um, in in 1982, uh, corn prices were less than two dollars a bushel. Okay, and we mm-hmm. had a, we had a local drought in Ohio, and hay prices were like two hundred dollars a ton. And and the cost of hay per pound was double the cost of corn. Mm-hmm. And the cost of calories from hay was four times the cost of calories from corn. Mm-hmm. And I had a swine nutritionist, Don Mahan, that, that his office was just down the hall from mine. And, and I was listening to one of his students present a talk on uh, gestating sound nutrition. And I thought, well, how do they feed these, these pregnant pigs? Mm-hmm. They, they don't feed them alfalfa hay and ad lib uh, high fiber byproducts so that they don't fit, get fat. They control their intake and they, uh, a sow, a pregnant sow would love to eat 10 pounds a day, but they control their intake and they feed them three or four pounds a day of a high grain diet. The lowest cost per nutrient ingredients is what they used. And I thought, why don't we feed beef cows that way? Why are we, why are we harvesting hay? which I spent a lot of time harvesting hay on the, <laughs> on the farm when I was a boy. It's a hot labor intensive uh, practice and you can't haul it very far because it doesn't have any bulk density. Mm-hmm. And so it has high local value. Um, and I thought, why are we doing that instead of limit feeding a high grain diet to these beef cows, just like, like they do for a pregnant sow. And then I started thinking about, I uh, was doing some work with receiving calves and um, the biggest challenge in meeting the nutrient requirements of receiving calves into the feedlot is that they don't want to eat. Mm-hmm. So the first couple of days, they don't need anything. And then the first week they're starting to eat, you know, a couple of pounds of, of feed per day. It, it takes them three to four weeks before they're eating their, their normal uh, intake of nutrients. So if receiving calves require minerals and protein for immune response, and they're only eating two or three pounds a day, I thought, duh, well, maybe mm-hmm. we should increase the concentration of those nutrients. And so mm-hmm. this was kind of a philosophy of, of my career that I never let go of. And, it, and it's, a, it's a concept, I'm a simple person. Okay, it's a concept that's so simple that most people miss it. And you think about human nutrition. What do they always advocate? It's what what should you eat? Eat more vegetables, eat eat less uh, dairy products or more dairy products. Eat this, eat that. And your nutrition is is all dictated or recommended by what you eat. Mm -hmm. And I remember from introductory nutrition that nutrient intake is the product of the composition, the percent, times the amount. Yes. And everybody focuses on the composition and nobody focuses on the consumption. amount. I, I, I like to call <clears throat> composition is not consumption. Right. And, composition and, is not consumption. And the nutrients that you consume are the product of the composition times the amount, the consumption. Yeah. And it's a simple com- concept. I've used it for receiving calves. I've used it for uh, growing replacement heifers. I've used it for pregnant uh, cows. Anytime an animal 
does not require maximum intake, this works this this works very well. So the the cost of the nutrients dictate the nutrients you should choose. Mm-hmm. And then that evolved into kind of a prescription intake philosophy where you could uh, you could rearrange or manipulate the growth curve uh, the way you wanted it to look like to achieve maximum efficiency, maximum body composition and product composition, uh, reduced and improved efficiency and reduced uh, feed intake along the way. All of these things can be manipulated. Um, and, and in fact, I got into a situation, what's one of the challenges in, in feedlot nutrition is having consistent bunk calls, mm-hmm. a bunk reader that's consistent seven days a week, maybe 14 or, or seven days a week and maybe 14 times a day, maybe more. Yeah. How do you get that consistency instead of calling bunks? And my philosophy is uh, those cattle don't have to eat ad libitum every day of their life in the feedlot. And I can sit here uh, I, w- I was sitting in Worcester, Ohio, making feed calls for a friend of mine who ran a feedlot in eastern Iowa. Mm-hmm. And I, you tell me how much how, how much they weigh, what you, you tell me what your target end weight is, and we'll divide a devise a nutrition program where I can tell you how much to feed them every day until the last eighty days, and then the last eighty days we can Change. feed them at libido. Yeah, we we we're gonna ask more questions because we are doing experiment on that in the next one. Uh, but it's it's good to hear more about some of the things that you did. Uh, still in your career, what are some challenges that you faced when you first moved to Ohio that you were not expecting as a young faculty that you didn't learn in school? Um, I was kind of impatient, and <laughs> uh, and and I was. Um, I, I uh, so the advice I got from Burke DeHorty, Doctor DeHorty, was uh, he it, he he called me into his office one day and he said, "You need to think about something. You need to choose your battles wisely." Okay, and and uh, I was I was fighting every everything in the whole system. I thought was inappropriate. I was impatient, and uh, and I had to learn. To, to choose my battles wisely. Um, another thing I had to learn was that in science, we are trained to be very critical. We're critical of the paper we just read. We're critical of the tests that a student uh, gives us when, when we're giving an exam. Um, we're critical of a, a grant proposal that we've reviewed. We're critical of everybody else's work. We're trained to be critical thinkers, and that's not the way you interact with people. And it, it, it took me a little time in my maturity uh, to learn that, that um, we should probably be 90% affirming in our relationships with our colleagues and our students, 90% affirming to encourage that good behavior. And maybe only 10% uh, critical to discourage bad behavior. And it depends a little bit on the student. You know, Pedro, <laughs> maybe for you it was 20% and only uh, and, and, and not 10% like it was for Dr. Felix. But you get my point. Yes. In our relationships with people, and it, it's true. I, I actually learned that from from Karen, my wife, uh, as we raised four kids that 
my my oldest son is very strong-willed and bullheaded. He's like his old man. And uh, and I found myself always criticizing his behavior. And 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 Karen said to me, um, she's an elementary school teacher, so she understands uh, you know, the development of the brain and, and personality. She said that cannot be your relationship. Your relationship needs to be balanced and with more positive uh, and a cup positive encouragement rather than just negative. And um, it took me a while to learn that professionally because um, it's really important at home. And and sometimes I've been married 45 years. And so I take this critical mindset home and I start being critical around the house. It's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's good. So, and then you were 32 years a professor and moved to administration. Yeah. So uh, how how was that transition? And tell more, us more about your the current positions that you have. Yeah. Okay. Well, had in that few years. You bet. Um, I never I never strived to be an administrator. I had I, I had 13 department chairs when I was at Ohio State, so I saw a lot of uh, department leadership. Um, much of it was not real strong. I had a couple of really really good department heads. Uh, one was Jim Kinder, who was uh, my department head for 12 years, I think. But um, I got a call from Doug Parrott at the University of Illinois, and he was a friend of mine from grad school days. And if I hadn't gone to grad school at Illinois, if Erskine Cash hadn't taken our judging team there, this never would have happened. I never would have ended up at Ohio State. I never would have met you. Mm -hmm. So uh, I do believe in divine intervention. I do believe that I've been guided. Uh, in my career and blessed in my career. And Doug Parrott called me five times and you can picture this. I was standing in the parking lot at the, at the beef center in Worcester, Ohio. Maybe, maybe it was when I was your intern and yeah. you were tired. <laughs> I was looking for a chance to escape. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I won't, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, that, that and uh, and Doug Doug actually called me five times and I told him no four times. And then finally he convinced me that uh, Karen and I should come out and, and visit the University of Illinois. And, and I went out there and I got so excited about the facilities they have there and the people they have there and the, the way they were geared and set up. Um, it, it's really a preeminent department. I'm, I was very proud to have the opportunity to lead that department. Uh, I had 11 assistant professors at the time and I thought, what a, what a great opportunity. And um, I, I, I really enjoyed my time at Illinois. My plan was um, I'd had 32 years under my boots at, at uh, Ohio State. I was going to give them five years and then I was going to retire. Mm -hmm. And then <laughs> God threw me another curveball. <clears throat> and then you came here back home. Yeah. So and, and Pedro knows this well, because um, when I was at Illinois, we, we moved there at the same time. And we were roommates uh, and, and we were roommates. <laughs> Pedro and I lived together for three months while Karen was back in Ohio finishing up the school year. And I told Pedro, I said, when 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 school's over and Karen comes in June, you have to find another place to live. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and your your mentor on your advisor was Tara Felix, who mm -hmm. worked for me at, at Ohio State and got her Ph.D. with me. And. Uh, and so you and I followed Tara. To, she Her first job out of yeah. grad school was at the University of Illinois. We and both. so Pedro and I, or you and I followed Tara to Illinois. I became her boss again. She mm -hmm. became your boss again. <laughs> and, uh, 
and and we had a really we had a really good time there. Um, Tara had an op- opportunity to return to Penn State, which was her home. Um, after maybe I was at Illinois three years or two and a half years, and so she she took a job at Penn State, and uh, you finished your master's degree and decided to move to Penn State and uh, work on your PhD here with, with Tara. Heavily influenced by you, but that, that's yeah. another story. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so Tara, Tara found out about this job in the dean's office uh, here at Penn State, senior associate dean in charge of operations and management of the college. Personnel, I get all the HR stuff, hiring, firing, good behavior, bad behavior, awards, et cetera, budgets, you know, where do we get our money? How do we spend our money and facilities? And and remember, I told you I'm not very strategic. I'm every, everything I do is result driven. What what just happened yesterday dictates my decision for today and tomorrow. And uh, and the job seemed like it was a really good opportunity. Tara sent me the job announcement, said you should apply for this. And I thought, well, Pedro's back at Penn State and Tara's at Penn State and my mom lives in State College. Maybe I should consider that. And uh, and I remember very well, I was this commencement speaker at commencement here at Penn State two weeks ago, a week and a half ago. And I told this story that when when I got on the plane to come to Penn State, Karen said, now, don't screw this up. <laughs> Because throughout my whole career at Ohio State, she asked me, how come you're not good enough to get a job back home at Penn State? So uh, it, it worked out really well. Um, I was glad to be able to come back here and serve my alma mater. Good. And you we moved, before we move to, to the end of this conversation, uh, you mentioned you, you had to manage a lot of young professors in Illinois. You were responsible for hiring here. For students who are listening to us right now and plan to go to academia, for example, what are the things that you see as a strong, I would say, characteristics or strong yeah. points that you see to in even myself as a young uh, faculty member, Brooke starting her career as well. What are the characteristics that you see that can you can see most of those, the good, the successful. Yeah. People. So one of, one of my philosophies to success is, is find out what your boss wants and then give it to them or that, 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 find out what your, your, what is valued in, in your position and give it to them. So as, as a graduate student or a postdoc, um, the thing that you you need to focus on is is doing activities that's that are going to build your CV, so it's, that you can market yourself when you're applying for a job. You you told me one time, your job as as a grad student in May it's to make your boss looks good. Yeah. So. <laughs> and and I, you know, my my own abilities and talents are very limited, Pedro. Uh-huh. But but one thing I have been very successful at is is uh, Attracting really good people and then taking credit for everything they accomplish. And, and you know that you know that very well. My my former students are running the beef nutrition programs here with Tara Felix and at Ohio State, Ollie Railing, one of my students took my job and and John Schoomaker at Purdue and uh, Carrie Pickworth at North Carolina State, Francis Fluharty's department head at, 
of animal science of Georgia and and even that's the same in in Brazil and uh, the list goes on Milton Gorosica in Mexico the, the list goes on and on mm-hmm. um, and and what you need to do as a graduate student is you need to identify those things that are going to be valued on a job application so if you whether it's industry or or whether it's academia you need to spend your time devoted to those things it's time management it's priorities so you need to have you need to have publications before you graduate you can't wait till your dissertation is is in the grad school before you start publishing or you're going to be looking for a job and not have any track record. Mm -hmm. You need to participate in writing grants with your advisor. And it may be industry grants. It may be relationships with industry. You need to go to meetings and make yourself known. Um, You know, there are three kinds of people in the world. There there are people that watch things happen. Mm -hmm. There are people that make things happen. And there are people that say, what happened? And you need to be the person that makes things happen. You Mm -hmm. have control of your destiny. So you need to volunteer for teaching assignments, volunteer to go out and make presentations at producer meetings, be uh, diligent about going to meetings and meeting people. Don't just be passive and, and, uh, and go to the bars with your colleagues. Uh, Seek out, people that you that are well known and respected in the industry whether it's academia or industry and and ask some questions about what they do when you're sitting in a scientific session be that person that hears the paper and says oh i wonder about this and ask that question you do you you excel at that paper. I, love, <laughs> I love that about you but that's that's good so we we're moving to our quiz but i I, uh, before we move, do you have any question, Brooke? I'm like just manipulating this. <laughs> no, no questions for me. Uh, what is what is something that you know today that you wish you knew when you're finishing school? Oh boy! <laughs> or, or that you could go back and tell the the young Steve, just fresh going to high state do this yeah i for me it, it's um there there's so many different kinds of intelligence and some people are just absolutely brilliant they have total recall they can remember everything they read or heard and and that's not me and and some people are very creative and you know they 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 may be artistic and and that kind of creativity or they may be creative in the way they think and and some people are really good problem solvers. They can they can puzzle out a solution uh, to a question. And and some people are just flat out really hard workers. And and they bust their butt seven days a week. They stay focused. They don't get distracted. And I guess what I what I learned along the way is that you can't be all those kinds of things. You need to you need to accentuate your positives and and minimize your negatives. And you know, you as a, as a student, you may not excel in in the classroom. Maybe you don't have a 4.0. That's okay. But you need to find the things that you're really good at and excel in those. And and it took me a while to figure that out as I was a 
an assistant professor uh, going going through the ranks. Um, but I tell every uh, I've interviewed 50 people for faculty positions in the last six weeks. It's it's been uh, uh, taken a lot of time. And, and I tell these people, every one of them that are interviewing for these faculty positions, I say, you have an elite set of accomplishments or you wouldn't be sitting here today talking to me. You've achieved a tremendous amount to be, to be where you are. And you don't need to worry about tenure if you continue to achieve at that level and meet your own expectations. Because obviously you have high expectations or you wouldn't be here. Young, young faculty members are very worried about this tenure thing, you know, and we make so much of it. And in my eyes, um, if you meet your own expectations, which obviously are high or you wouldn't have gotten where you are, then tenure is going to happen. You don't need to worry about that. That's that's really good. So and and that's what that was actually one of the, the questions in, in the quiz. But I'm going to ask quick questions now. Uh, three three quick questions that I have here and that we're going to finish with our uh, Carol Call top tip. That's how I call. So what is your favorite food? Oh, my favorite food is uh, is steak, uh, a ribeye steak. Good. And and it's one that I, I produced and one that I cooked. Great. When I go out to a restaurant, I hardly ever order steak. It's a lot more satisfying <laughs> if I grew the steak and... and uh, and, 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 and cook it myself. Good, yeah. Um, cars or wine? Cars or wine? Yeah, with your <laughs> steak. You know, I'm in transition here. So, yeah. so I started drinking when I lived in California, where you were. <laughs> um, the drinking age was 18, and the drinking age in Pennsylvania was 21. So I was 19 when I moved to California. And I took a little break from my college career and uh, did some honest work in San, outside of San Diego. And uh, I developed a taste for uh, original Coors, the banquet beer. <laughs> and then uh, I gradually switched to Coors Light. And, and now I'm starting to transition back to my roots, to the banquet beer. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's important that you hydrate. Okay. This is what I tell people all the time. Coors Light is 96% water. It's very important <laughs> that you hydrate on a hot summer day. Good. Uh, what What is the type of song that you like? I, I that that one I could guess right, but what what is the type of song that you play? The song. The song. Oh, the song. Um, well, I'm an Eagles fan, and uh, Hotel California, Desperado, Take It Easy. Uh, I, I grew up uh, in the in the sixties and seventies and, and the Eagles were, have always been a, uh, one of my favorites. And uh, I like their kind of country rock good. style. That's good. So we, we also always like to ask uh, our guests about uh, we call the kettle called top tip, which is, can be a movie a book or something that you like uh, that you that or it's sometimes like even research papers, something that you would like that our listeners who is finishing this uh, <clears throat> podcast now, they, they could go and, and search for that and, and read, listen, or watch. I'm going to be a, uh, I'm going to be a, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you something. There's a, there's, there's an author called W E B Griffin. And, uh, and he has several series of books 
and they're kind of like historical uh, fiction. Mm-hmm. And and he's one of my favorite off- authors. And so he has a series that spends a lot of time in in uh, between Argentina and the United States. He has a a series on on the Marines that covers kind of pre World War II and then through. Uh, mostly in the Pacific theater of operations and all the way through to, uh, to the Korean war. And, and, and I like, I like reading those books just to relax. They're historical fictions. They do give you some context about uh, historical events in the United States. And, uh, and they don't stress my brain because when, when I, uh, when I go home, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't like to exercise my brain too much. I'd rather do a little uh, yard work or shovel some snow and uh, those yeah. kinds of things. Great. So, Brooke, any question? So, I, I, I'm going to ask one last question that I, uh, I told you that I'm, I want to incorporate these. I should be asking that more often. But just to finish up, what do you see as next in in beef cattle? research like what what are the things that you that you see as the future for us yeah and that's a that's a tough question pedro to answer in any specificity so let me i mean i we i could talk for half an hour about this but um the year i graduated from college 1977 there were 220 million people in this country Now they're 330 million. We literally are feeding 110 million more people in this country since I went to college. And we're doing that on 20% less farmland. Those people have an environmental footprint, a big one. Their appetite uh, for consumables is much greater than our appetite when I was a kid in in terms of energy, uh, cars, toys, you name it, houses, um, all of those things. So how do we how do we meet that food production? How do we provide a, a safe, nutritious, affordable food supply going forward the next generation, the next 45 years? How do we do that? And in my view, the way we do that is, is through the land grant mission, teaching, research, and extension. We have to train up and educate those undergraduates and graduates that'll go out there in the in the world in the industry and do great things so that I can take credit for their accomplishments, okay? Um, We have to make those discoveries that are going to drive, uh, that drive our knowledge base forward. When when I was an assistant professor, we were happy if our cattle gained 3.2 pounds a day. Mm-hmm. The the last trial that that uh, Tara Felix did at Illinois, she was my last PhD student. Her cattle gained four point two pounds per day. So, what will the future bring? I think. Well, in in when I was feeding cattle, we finished them at ten fifty, and it took uh, uh, it took another sixty days on feed to get them fed, and feed efficiency was seven and a half to one instead of 5.3 to one now. So what's the future hold? I think, you know, the future will hold where uh, we'll be growing cattle. So they gain a quarter of a pound an hour. Do you know how much that is a day? A quarter of a pound an hour. You've been asking all the questions. So six pounds a day, you know, that I think that's uh, that could easily happen in the next 45 years. So 
it'll be it'll be genetics. Mm-hmm. It'll be nutrition. It'll be physiology and reproductive physiology and muscle biology. Um, it'll be metabolomics. It'll be uh, the microbiome and manipulating the gut. Uh, it'll be animal health and, and disease, a huge one. Uh, management and simple management strategies. And so I'm not going to give you a specific discovery, but what I will tell you is that society will limit how fast we grow and they will limit that by how much money we get to do this research and train these students and take that information out and share it with the world uh, as we do an extension. Society will dictate that by the money that they're willing to invest in this process, in this land grant mission. And they also will dictate it by the regulations they impose and mm-hmm. the things they value. And we've seen that recently just with FDA and implants. Mm-hmm. You know, what in BST for, for uh, milk production, mm-hmm. totally safe, totally effective, reduces greenhouse gases per unit of, per pound of milk produced significantly. And yet society decided, no, we don't, we don't want that technology. That's what those things will limit what we can achieve in the in the future. When when I was here as an undergraduate, the dairy cows across from the stadium here were producing 15,000 pounds of milk per year. When I got here five years ago, they were producing 24,000 pounds of milk per cow per year. In the five years I've been here, they bumped it to 27. We've had a 10 percent increase in milk production per cow in the five years I've been here. How do we continue that trajectory? Have we discovered everything that there is to be known? I say no. <laughs> we go back to the beginning of this, uh, yeah. of all of our talk. <laughs> you need to be a little uh, ignorant, like you need to, yeah. to be curious. That's really good. I think that's a very nice way to end. We're going to have another one just to re- talk a little. We talk a little bit about this one, about research, but we'll have another one to to talk about specific on the research. I I want to thank you, Steve. It's it's been great. I I, I knew that would be nice, and to yeah. be here in person it's would great be great to be with you. And nice to meet you too, Brooke. It, it would be special. So I just want to thank you again for our listeners who are uh, listening to this podcast. Um, we have the transcription, a monthly newsletter. Uh, the link is in this, the description of this episode. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, please send an email to kettlecallucd at gmail.com. Uh, all of the information in the description of this episode. Thank you very much. And remember, it's always a good time for a kettle call. <laughs>